The Jodcast, Episode 70 for Wednesday, April 1st, 2009. Welcome to The Jodcast, our twice-monthly facts-based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, editor of Universe Today, and with me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hey, Pamela. Hey, Fraser. How's it going? It's going well. How do, how do you like our new show? How does it feel to be adding two more shows a month to the lineup? Pamela's indisposed right now. So, I go away for six months, and this is what happens. We get taken over. Oh, hang on a second. You don't understand. This, uh, this isn't what it sounds like. No. No, don't even bother trying to explain. The Jodcast shall live again. This time, there will be no taking over. This time, there will be no holidays. This time, this time, nothing you can do can stop me now! The Jodcast. Don't panic. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Nick Rattenbury, Roy Smith, and Dan Dan Zoo. The Jodcast, April 2009 edition. Hello and welcome to the April 2009 edition of The Jodcast. With me is Stuart Lowe. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Nick. Hi, everybody. Yes, hello, everybody. And first of all, we'd like to start with a correction, a correction to the last episode. A listener pointed out that the International Space Station did not have a narrow encounter with a fragment from the Iridium-33 Cosmos 2251 collision, but rather space debris. And I quote, 25090-1993-32D, which is probably from the PAM-D stage that launched GPS-37 in May 1993. End quote. So apologies for the mistake there, and thanks for the correction. And remember, if you spot anything that we've said that's not quite right, then drop us a line at the Jodcast via the website at www.jodcast.net. In the show this time, we interview Ian Stevens from Birmingham about finding planets with LOFAR. I sadly say goodbye. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Strongest evidence yet for a binary black hole system. Dark matter dominated dwarfs and how to identify a supernova progenitor. The number of galaxies observed in the process of colliding and merging is large, and there is much evidence to suggest that galaxies in the early universe grow through a series of merger events. If this is the case, then mergers of the central supermassive black holes should also take place, producing strong gravitational wave signals which experiments such as LIGO are hoping to detect. Pre-merger binary black hole systems are difficult to find, however, since, by their nature, they are most likely to be found in distant quasars, where current telescopes lack the resolution to see what's going on directly. Astronomers studying the optical spectra from a catalogue of 17,500 quasars have discovered a system with the most convincing evidence so far of two supermassive black holes in orbit. Reported in Nature on the 5th of March, the object known as J1536 plus 0441 shows three sets of emission lines in a spectrum obtained as part of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Galaxies which host quasars typically have emission lines which are either broad or narrow, and sometimes display both types of line. The width of the line depends on the orbital speed of the gas which creates it. The broader the line, the faster the material is moving, and the closer to the nucleus it must be. 
Narrow lines are thought to come from slower-moving gas in the outer parts of the galaxy. What is unique about J1536 is that the spectrum shows narrow lines and not one but two sets of broad lines, with velocities that differ by 3,500 kilometers per second. The authors of the study, Todd Barosen and Todd Lauer, both at the National Optical Astronomy Observatory in Arizona, argue that the most likely explanation is one host galaxy producing the narrow lines, containing two supermassive black holes in orbit around each other, separated by about a tenth of a parsec, with an estimated orbital period of around 100 years. While other explanations have not been completely ruled out, this is the strongest evidence yet of a binary supermassive black hole system in such a tight orbit. Galaxy clusters are rough environments. The gravitational interactions can tear apart even large galaxies. But astronomers studying observations of a large cluster of galaxies in Perseus have discovered a population of small galaxies that have managed to remain intact, despite the surrounding gravitational tug-of-war. The observations are described in a paper published in the journal The Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society during March. What the team found was a collection of old dwarf galaxies with surprisingly smooth structures, appearing smooth and round rather than gravitationally disrupted as might be expected in this sort of environment. The explanation for this result could be that these dwarf galaxies contain a large amount of dark matter, effectively cushioning them from the surrounding gravitational forces and allowing them to survive where much larger spiral galaxies cannot. The authors argue that these dwarf galaxies are very old, and have been part of the Perseus Cluster for a long time, so that for them to have survived this long without any signs of major disruption means that something must be counteracting the gravitational forces, and their conclusion is that they must be very dark matter-dominated galaxies. While supernovae are rare in our own galaxy, several hundred are discovered in other galaxies each year, many by dedicated amateur astronomers who observe the same galaxies regularly looking for new objects. Identifying the progenitors of these events, the actual star which explodes, is a tricky task. Many of the supernovae we observe are in distant galaxies where current telescopes lack the resolution to distinguish individual stars, especially in galactic bulges where there are many stars in a small volume. This is a problem for supernova models. To understand fully the physics of these explosions requires knowledge of the type of stars which explode. A study published in the journal Nature during March describes how the progenitor of one particular supernova has been identified. The event, known as SN2005GL, was seen to explode in 2005 in the galaxy NGC 266. Using Hubble Space Telescope images of the galaxy from 1997, researchers had previously identified a bright object at the location of 2005GL, but it was not certain that this object was a single star. It could have been light from a stellar cluster, with the progenitor of 2005GL being just one star in a group. Or it could have been a background object, with the explosion due to a fainter star in front of the bright star, seen in the Hubble image. What the new study shows is that this object was in fact a single star, which was the progenitor of 2005GL. Observations of the same galaxy taken by the HST in September 2007, two years after the supernova, show that the object has disappeared. Analysis of the data obtained before the explosion shows that the progenitor was probably a very bright type of star known as a luminous blue variable, or LBV. 
These stars are thought to be massive, more than fifty times the mass of the Sun, and very short-lived. Several other supernovae events have had their progenitors identified over the last few decades, but in most cases the progenitors were less than twenty times the mass of the Sun. Apart from the exceptional case of SN 1987A in the nearby Large Magellanic Cloud, this is the most convincing case of the identification of a supernova progenitor. And finally, March the 6th saw the launch of Kepler, a satellite designed to search for Earth-like planets orbiting around other stars. Launched on a Boeing Delta II rocket from Cape Canaveral, the satellite will go into an Earth-trailing heliocentric orbit, with a period of 372.5 days, so that it slowly falls behind the Earth in its journey around the Sun. The main instrument is a type of detector known as a photometer, which will stare at the same patch of sky for the expected four-year duration of the mission. This highly sensitive detector will watch for the tiny changes in brightness that signify a transiting planet in a sample of 100,000 stars. Of the 342 extrasolar planets discovered to date, only 58 of these transit their parent star. While other missions such as Coro are also searching for transiting planets, Kepler is the most sensitive instrument so far, with an aperture of 95 centimetres and an array of 42 CCD chips, each with 2,200 by 1,024 pixels. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, last month, as we mentioned on the previous Jodcast, the NASA Kepler mission was launched to look for Earth-like planets, so a few of the new Jodcast recruits went to interview Ian Stevens from the University of Birmingham about finding planets with LOFAR. Today we have Dr. Ian Stevens from University of Birmingham. He's going to tell us the story about detecting exoplanets at radio wavelengths. And thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. So can you tell us, what are exoplanets? Okay, exoplanets, or sometimes they're called extrasolar planets, are simply planets that orbit around other stars. In our own solar system, we have, well, eight or nine planets, um, which orbit around our sun, such as the Earth, Mars, Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, and so on. Um, but we are now discovering planets which orbit stars other than our sun. And those are called extrasolar planets, and they have a remarkable range of properties. Some are much more massive than Jupiter. Um, others have periods of, of just a few days. And some of them have these hugely eccentric orbits, which means they look almost like comets in terms of sort of plunging in towards their host star. How do we detect this exoplanet, and how many of them have been detected so far? The subject really only started in 1995, so first of all, it's a very young subject. And there are over 300 uh, known extrasolar planets, I believe 342 to be precise, as of as of today. Now, how can we find them? They're quite difficult to see. We don't see them directly. Uh, they're rather faint objects in the vicinity of a very bright star. You can't just sort of point your telescope at them and sort of see a planet. The way we detect extrasolar planets is to look for their effect on their host star. Well, that's the, the main way we see them. So just as the Jupiter goes around the Sun, the Sun also, in some sense, goes around Jupiter. Um, but the motion of the Sun caused by the presence of Jupiter is very small, but it is detectable. And we use this uh, wobble of the star to detect the, uh, the presence of an extrasolar planet. And so by monitoring the, uh, the velocity of a star, we can see it move back and forth in a very small way, just a few meters a second. But that small motion 
gives us a, a sort of a, you know, evidence of the presence of a planet. So that's one way we detect extrasolar planets. Another way is what's called the transit method. And in the transit method, the planet passes in front of the star and causes the light from the star to diminish by maybe 1%. Now, you may remember sort of a few years ago, Venus passed in front of the sun. We saw the Venus transit. And over the course of, sort of an hour or so, Venus passed across the surface of the sun and caused a very slight diminution in the light from the sun. Now, we can do exactly the same thing for looking at distant stars. And a very small fraction of those distant stars have a planet that passes in front of the star and causing this very small uh, diminution in light, which we can pick, which we can detect with sort of sensitive telescopes. So at the moment, those are the two main ways that we can detect extrasolar planets. And you're going to tell us today about how to detect them in radio wavelength and why these planets give off radio emission and which planets in our solar system give off radio okay, emission. Okay, right. So um, let, let's start from what we know and then sort of move on to what we don't know. Using radio telescopes, we can detect a number of the planets in our own solar system. And so, for instance, Jupiter, which is the biggest planet, is a bright radio source. And you can detect Jupiter with some very simple equipment, almost a, a simple sort of radio receiver and a, sort of a, a, a wire as an aerial. You can pick up the presence of Jupiter. So planets in our own solar system are strong radio emitters, in particular Jupiter. And so the expectation is that planets around other stars should also be strong radio emitters. Now, the problem is, instead of being just a few astronomical units away like Jupiter, there are many parsecs, there are many thousands or indeed millions of times further away, and are so consequently so much more fainter. So we need sort of very sensitive radio telescopes uh, to, to undertake the search, and we also need some sort of special circumstances. For instance, Jupiter, as I say, is a bright radio source, but if Jupiter was orbiting, uh, not where it is now, but in a period of, say, one year where the Earth is, it would be a much, much brighter radio source. And of course, if Jupiter was not orbiting where Jupiter is, but was orbit orbiting where Mercury is, it would be a hugely bright radio source. It would be embedded in um, the wind from the sun, which sort of generates the radio, or helps to generate the radio emission. So what we're doing is looking for, um, or searching for radio emission from distant extrasolar planets orbiting other stars. And, uh, at the moment, we don't have any detections, but it, it's, sort of, it's a new sort of frontier, and we hope to have some detections in the near future. So are there any instruments that are being built that can help you in these detections? I'm glad you asked that question. To detect radio ex extraso or radio exoplanets, we need to work at low-frequency radio emission. And the, this is low-frequency co corresponds to a long wavelength. And so we're dealing with uh, wavelengths or, fre or frequencies of... 40 megahertz, which corresponds to sort of wavelength of meters or so. Now, these sort of long or low frequency radio waves are quite difficult, or it's quite difficult to build sensitive radio telescopes, um, and you suffer a lot from radio frequency interference. So a lot of the current generation of radio telescopes really are not designed to look for uh, this low frequency emission. However, on the on the horizon or on the very near horizon is a... Uh, a radio telescope called LOFAR, the, the Low Frequency Array. Now, this is predominantly a Dutch instrument funded by the Dutch government and with uh, antennas spread over 
really all of Holland, and it's a very interesting instrument. But there are also additional antennas a part of, as part of LOFAR spread around Europe. So the expectation is that there'll be a LOFAR antenna in the UK. Uh, there will be LOFAR antennas in France, Poland, the Ukraine, uh, Sweden, and I think Denmark. Um, so LOFAR ultimately will be an instrument that covers uh, a very large part of sort of Western Europe and will have sort of a, a baseline between uh, the, the most distant antennas of thousands of kilometers. And so that gives it uh, a tremendous power to, to do a lot of interesting science um, on, on a whole range of issues, including extrasolar planets. So why are you so keen on detecting radio waves from exoplanets? What is so very interesting about them? It's a new window on extrasolar planets. I sort of mentioned earlier that we can detect uh, planets via well, the Doppler wobble or the transit method. With radio waves, we have sort of just a new window and, and sort of a new way of detecting planets, but we also have a way of doing new science uh, on extrasolar planets. For instance, Jupiter, if you're monitoring it at wa radio wavelengths, you can see, you can detect the rotation of the planet. And you can also detect the presence of moons in, in the radio signal. And we hope to be able to do the same thing for extrasolar planets. And now, detecting how fast an extrasolar planet rotates is part of understanding how they formed and how they have evolved. Detecting um, with radio waves, we can also have some clue as to what they're made of, whether they have sort of this big iron core, which will have a, I mean, it has a very strong magnetic field, or whether it doesn't have a big iron core. So it gives us a new window for studying extrasolar planets and just new information that we can't get any other way. So when do you expect to first detect radio waves from an exoplanet? Well, LOFAR, or the LOFAR instrument, is being built at the moment, and it's some early data has been taken, but the, the LOFAR instrument needs to be sort of built up, and extra antennas being are, are being sort of put in all the time. So we expect, maybe ambitiously, sometime either later this year or probably more more likely next year, the instrument is, is in, in a much compl more complete state to have the capabilities to detect extrasolar planets. Now, next year, that, that maybe that's optimistic, but uh, in the next you know, three or four years, I'm fairly certain that a detection will be made. So it, it, it's sort of very much a, a, a timely, uh, timely subject. Stars also emit in radio wavelengths. How can you distinguish between the wavelength from stars and from exoplanets. Okay, that's that's a challenge. And because this low-frequency domain is so unexplored, we don't really know very well how stars behave at low-frequency uh, wavelengths. Now, we have some ideas. We expect the, uh, the radio emission from extrasolar planets to be highly polarized, to have a certain, you know, special characteristics which are different from the radio emission from stars. So looking at how polarized radio emission will give us a clue. We also expect radio emission from planets to vary in certain ways as they, they orbit their host star. So that, again, gives us another uh, handle or another means of discriminating uh, between radio emission from planets and stars. Now, th that's all speculation, and th the proof in the pudding will, will only come when we've got the data to work with. And, and then the sort of the debate will really begin when we know the characteristics of the radio emission we're looking at. And um, we're hopeful, but we're not sure uh, that we can do that. 
do you secretly hope to find radio missions from alien intelligence, if there ah. is any? So this is a search for extra, extraterrestrial intelligence. Who knows? I mean, we may sort of pick up the, you know, the equivalent of Radio 1 from uh, uh, this extrasolar planet. Um, personally, I'm not that optimistic that we can use radio waves to detect extraterrestrial intelligence. I mean, I think the um, if, if we look at the Earth, uh, the Earth was... Uh, had no radio emission a hundred years ago, or almost no radio emission a hundred years ago, and maybe in a hundred years' time, you know, the technology will be completely different, and we won't be sort of blasting out radio waves to to uh, to the nearby universe. So there may be a sort of very small window where civilizations are radio bright, if you like, and I think the chances of such a civilization being near to us where we can detect it are, are very small. It's an interesting area, and there's, there's lots of interesting new developments. There's something called the Allen Telescope Array in the US, which is designed to do just this. Um, and so good luck to them. They, they, it's one of those probably very low probability of a detection, but if you get a detection, it's hugely significant. So it's worth doing, uh, but I, I'm skeptical that it will, it will work. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> now, LOFAR isn't fully operational yet. It won't be um, operational as a complete telescope for some years. But let's turn to now what you can see yourself, the night sky with Ian Morrison. The night sky, April 2009. Well, I suppose the nights aren't quite as long now, but after sunset, you still have a chance to see that lovely region of sky centred on Orion, which will be setting over towards the west, and the bright star Sirius of Canis Major just to the west of south. I've talked about that area of the sky quite a bit on previous of the night sky talks. You can actually go back on the jogcast and, and read more about them. So let me at this time say a bit more about the stars that you'll see in the south and rising in the east. Well, I think Leo holds center stage, and at the moment, as we'll see, Saturn lies in Leo as well, so it's quite an interesting area to look at. One thing I should say, that if you do happen to have a small telescope, perhaps six to eight inches in size, then there are some very nice galaxies which lie just below the body of Leo, if you can imagine him sort of on his haunches. And the way that I tend to find them with what is called an equatorial mount is basically to point the telescope first at the star Regulus, that's the brightest star in Leo, and then gradually scan eastwards. Because if you do that, and even if you scan horizontally when Leo is in the south, you should pick up the galaxies. There are two sets as you work towards the, the rear of Leo the Lion. In between Gemini, which is up to the left of Orion, and that will still be visible in the evening, with its two bright stars, Pollux below and Castor above, there's a fairly blank part of the sky which forms the constellation of Cancer the Crab. But if you do look with binoculars, uh, or even under very dark skies, you can actually see it with your unaided eye, there's a nice star cluster called the Beehive Cluster, or Pricipe. Uh, and that's actually worth picking up, either with binoculars or with a small telescope. The other stars in that region really are not at all bright, 
and below Cancer we have the rather faint stars that make up the head of Hydra. Over to the lower left of Leo again is a fairly empty part of the sky. The only really bright star there is called Spica, which is the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo. But this constellation and Coma Berenices, which is above it, are in fact a region where with a small or medium telescope one can see hundreds of galaxies. It's actually called the realm of the galaxies because we're looking towards the heart of our local supercluster. There's a giant cluster called the Virgo cluster, over a thousand galaxies that obviously lies in the constellation of Virgo, but there are other clusters around in Coma Berenices and also in Leo, and it's a very, very rich area when you can use a reasonable-sized telescope. Let's have a look at the planets. It's becoming slightly better this month after a bit of a dearth of planets due to the fact that some were behind and some were between us and the Sun. So let's see what we can see. Jupiter, we'll start with, is actually not easily visible this month, though its separation from the Sun is increasing in the pre-dawn sky. It's just gone round the back, essentially. The trouble is, the ecliptic, which is the path on which the planets more or less lie, the plane of, the, of, the, of our solar system, is inclined at a shallow angle to the horizon at dawn. And so, although, in fact, Jupiter this month increases its separation from the Sun from 45 to 77 degrees, which is quite a lot, it still doesn't get all that much above the horizon, just about 17 degrees at month's end. And so binoculars will certainly make it easier to see in the glare of the sun. And you will need to have a relatively low eastern horizon. And just to say, it will lie very close to the crescent moon on April the 19th, just a little bit to the lower left of the crescent moon. So that's a, a nice time to look for it. Uh, we'll leave out Saturn and Mercury because I want to come back to those in the highlights of the month. So let's, in fact, first take um, Mars. Mars is still close in angle to the Sun in the pre-dawn sky, just 28 degrees as April begins. So again, it's not going to be very high above the horizon. It has a magnitude of plus 1.2, so it's reasonably bright. But again, binoculars will actually help. By the end of the month, it's actually 34 degrees away, and it'll then be about 8 degrees above the horizon. Um, really, we have to wait a month or two to see it better. Venus is much the same. It passed between the Earth and the Sun in March. So again, like Jupiter, like Mars, it's appearing in the pre-dawn sky. It will again only lie about 8 degrees above the horizon on the first day of April. So probably better to wait towards the end of the month. But in fact, it's going to be nicely visible on the 22nd of April when it's going to be very, very close to a thin crescent waning moon. Uh, there's a nice period, really, between the 19th of April and the 23rd when the crescent moon is in the eastern sky just before dawn. As I've said, on April the 19th, the moon is just up to the right of Jupiter. Then it gradually moves across the sky until on the 22nd it's very close, as I said, to Venus. And in fact, those people in North America, I think, will see an occultation of Venus. And on that day, if you look towards the horizon, just a touch to the right of Venus, you might well then pick up Mars. So that's a rather nice little skyscape from about the 19th 
to the 23rd, 22nd or so of April. Okay, let's come to the highlights of the month. Well, it's always nice to have a meteor shower that we can observe. And every year we have what's called the Lyrid meteor shower on the night of April the 22nd, 23rd. They're called the Lyrids because the radiant, this is the point from the sky where they seem to come from, is in the constellation of Lyra, the Lyre. You don't actually look directly at Lyra, you look roughly 45 to 90 degrees away, higher in the sky, and that's when you'll tend to see the most meteor trails. It peaks in the early morning of the 22nd of April. Um, it's reliable, but not necessarily very spectacular, typically about 15 meteors per hour. Um, in fact, they've been visible for over 2,600 years. A nice thing about this year, which makes it far better than last year, is that the peak of activity is just before new moon. So the thin crescent waning moon should not really interfere with our observations. Probably best to have a look just after midnight or so. We believe the dust particles that come into the atmosphere to cause the meteor shower were released by Comet Thatcher. I don't think that's named after our recent Prime Minister. It was discovered in 1861. In fact, in 1982, we actually passed through quite a dense clump of particles and over 90 meteors were seen each hour. So you never quite know what you might see. Still worth a look to have a go at about 1 to 2 a.m., if you can get yourself up at that time of the night or early morning and have a look towards the east. Well, there's quite a good night on April the 26th. On that night, Mercury is at its greatest eastern elongation. It has an angular distance to the sun, its greatest that night, of about 20 degrees. And it remains in the twilight sky after sunset for about two hours. You'll need a low western horizon this time to see it. And one useful thing to do is to have a look out as the sun is setting, so you know where the sun has actually set. And basically Mercury will be found on a shallow arc up and to the left of where the sun has set. And of course, never look at the sun with binoculars, but at least just note whereabout on the horizon it's set. It gives you a good idea where to look for Mercury. One nice thing is, again that uh, on the 26th, the moon is going to be very, very close. In fact, just to the upper left. Now, what you won't see, because of the glare of the sun at that time, is just above the moon is the lovely Pleiades cluster. And later that evening, the moon is going to occult some of those stars. Um, it's cutting across the lower left-hand side of the Pleiades, so it won't, in fact, cut across many of the bright ones. But I worked out that, at least from northern England, the star Merope will be occulted at about 2131 UT and will reappear again at 2211 UT. So, quite a nice night if it's clear. First of all, have a look at Mercury, which is going to be below the Moon's position and a bit to the right. And then later in the evening, have a look for the Moon and the Pleiades together. Now, I left out Saturn when I talked about the planets because I've called it a highlight this month. It's probably one of the best months to see it. It's high in the southern sky, lying below the constellation of Leo the Lion. It's actually a good bit below Leo. A little bit of Leo's constellation sort of dips down between the two adjacent lower constellations. 
it's at magnitude plus 0.6. Now that's not as bright as it very often is for the very simple reason that its rings are very close to edge on. And this year they wiggle about a bit, uh, again with very small angles, and in September they'll actually be absolutely edge on, and so we won't actually be able to see them at all just for a bit. We'll have to wait until 2016 before they're fully open again. But one nice thing about having the rings almost edge on is that there's less glare from them, and that actually makes it rather easier to see some of the inner of the satellites, assuming you have perhaps a 5, 6 or 8 inch telescope. So in that sense, it's quite a nice time to observe Saturn, even if it's not so bright. And of course, you do see both hemispheres quite well. And it is nicely high in the sky in the latter part of the evening, just below Leo. So do have a look. OK, well, I think that's all I want to say uh, about the northern sky. But I, I should, as I am now doing, say something about the southern sky. But I hope what I say will be interesting to those uh, who perhaps don't have the chance to see the lovely skyscapes that they have in the southern hemisphere. Well, as the night bears on, first of all, whereas we only see Venus very low above the horizon, in the southern hemisphere, you actually see it rather high. So you have a very nice, good chance to have a look at the planet Venus after sunset. The Magellanic clouds are reasonably high in the south, the large Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud are sort of arcing around the South Celestial Pole and moving towards the horizon. But as they do, the Milky Way is sort of rising upwards. And that lovely region I've talked about in recent months containing the Southern Cross and Carina, the Carina Nebula and Omega Centauri, that lovely region, that's climbing very high in the sky, making it wonderful to observe. But at the same time, then the constellations of Scorpius and Sagittarius are rising in the southeast. And there, of course, you're seeing the heart of our Milky Way galaxy. There is some wonderful nebula, such as the Lagoon Nebula, in Sagittarius, and it's a beautifully rich area to look at with either binoculars or a small telescope. So it's actually well worth staying up for an hour or so in April, but of course as we go towards May and June then they will be rising earlier and you have a better chance to see them. Just finally a quick word about the Magellanic Clouds. They have performed an important role in measuring the distances of the galaxies beyond our own. Henrietta Leavitt measured the brightness of some variable stars, I think initially in the small Magellanic Cloud. They're called Cepheid variables after the star Delta Cepheus, discovered by John Goodrick way back in the 1600s. Now, she observed that they have a brightness that increases rapidly and then falls away gently. She observed quite a number of these in the small Magellanic Cloud, which implies, of course, they're all at about the same distance. So those that appeared brighter were actually brighter than those that appeared fainter. And she discovered that the bigger, brighter ones oscillate more slowly, which is what you might expect. A big bell has a lower pitch when you ring it than a small bell. And the periods of these oscillations can be measured up to uh, tens of days. Now the point is this, these stars are very bright, 
they're giants in the final phases of their life, and that's why they're unstable and oscillating in brightness. This means they can be seen at quite great distances. So if you can observe a Cepheid variable star in a distant galaxy and note, for example, its period is, let's say, a 100 days, you then would know its brightness was about a 10,000 times brighter than our sun because they've been calibrated. We know the distance of this small magellanic cloud so we can calibrate their brightnesses. On the other hand, if you find one that's oscillating every 10 days, that's about a 1,000 times brighter than our sun. If we know that, that means that these so-called standard candles can be used to estimate the distance of the distant galaxies. And it was when Hubble observed a Cepheid variable star in the galaxy Andromeda that we knew that these so-called white nebulae, what we now call galaxies, were objects beyond our own Milky Way galaxy. So they have quite a role in the history of the size and scale of our universe. Thanks for that, Ian. And that brings us to the point in the show where we talk about your feedback. So let's start with the emails. Thanks to Stella for sending us that correction that we mentioned at the beginning of the show. And that's that's it, really, for emails this month. If you have anything you'd like to send in an email to us, then please go to the website at jodcast.net and find the contact page. On the Jodcast forum, uh, people have been very active. It's great to see so many people contributing to the Jodcast forum. And uh, in particular, there's an interesting discussion going on at the moment about your favorite image in the Jodcast archive. So if you have a particular interest in the images that you see that we use for cover art and you think, wow, it's a fantastic picture. Where did that come from? Do join in the, the discussion and uh, vote for your favorite. And we have to say particular thanks to Yoda the Oak in the forum who managed to print out all of our cover arts in one big sheet and sent us a few copies through the post. So thank you very much to Yoda the Oak for those. That's very nice. Yes, thank you very much. It's hanging up in the wall of my office. And on iTunes, thank you very much to Katie Calvert and Estrang for your reviews on iTunes. They're most welcome. And if you haven't yet given us a review on iTunes and you have iTunes on your computer, then please go along and give us a review. It all helps. Welcome to the new members of the Jodcast Facebook group. Thank you very much for subscribing to that. The numbers are going up slowly, but steadily. It's fantastic to see that we're getting quite a few people who are on Facebook joining the Jodcast group. We've had three postcards, one from Jason Hill, thanks very much, one from Megan Argo in sunny Perth, and one from Dave Alt in sunny India. So thanks very much, everybody, for sending in those postcards. And please, everybody out there, please do send us uh, postcards or any feedback whatsoever. You can send it to the email... You can discuss things that happen in the Jodcast on the forum at forum.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. You can see our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash jodcast. Or you can even send us some real mail in the post. We do like the real mail. (laughs) All the ways of contacting us you can find on our contact tab on the Jodcast page, jodcast.net. Right now, and welcome back to Dave Vault, who's back from his whirlwind tour. It wasn't really a whirlwind tour, was it? It was six months performing Shakespeare in Udaipur, India. So welcome back, Dave, to the Jodcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. How was it, Um, by the way? How was it over there? It was absolutely amazing. Um, I've been performing Shakespeare for, yeah, five months, and then I had a little bit of time to travel around Rajasthan and Delhi and Agra. Got to go and see the Taj Mahal, of course. 
And, uh, yeah, I've performed for royalty. I've been performing in palaces and living in forts. And, yeah, it's been quite a, quite an experience. Sounds fantastic. And have you had any time to do any astronomy? Have I had time? There are no clouds out there, it seems. We're jealous already. (laughs) <laughs> and because we were performing at, uh, well, we started our shows around 6.30, uh, we got to see dusk and we got to see the uh, stars coming out and I got to see how the moon moves and how Venus moved and, and basically I got to uh, put into practice everything I'd learnt at the planetarium and everything I'd learnt uh, everywhere else and of course from Ian Morrison and, and all of this, I, it was just amazing. It was an open-air performance uh, of uh, Measure for Measure, as I understand That's it. That's right, yes, yes. Did you ever did you ever get struck by the night sky as it became, uh, as stars came out during dusk and just forget your lines and just start thinking, oh, that's interesting, <laughs> yeah, Venus is looking quite bright tonight. And It was a, just such a shame that uh, the line uh, that says, look, the unfolding star calls up the shepherd, couldn't have been said by me. I wanted to be the Duke just so that I could say that line and point to Venus. <laughs> a shame. Um, next time, though. Next time. Yes. Uh, there were some times where the full moon hampered our uh, blackouts because, of course, they didn't become blackouts. Um, but, uh, no, the, the night sky was utterly amazing. But I, I focused on the job in hand. Well, we're delighted that uh, you had a fantastic time over there, and we're even more delighted that you can spend a little bit more time uh, joining us again on the Jodcast. So, welcome yes. back. Thank you very much, and, and also sorry to hear that you're leaving. Yes, it's very sad. Unfortunately, uh, I do have to move on. Uh, it's been fantastic working here at uh, Manchester. It's been a spectacular nearly five years. Uh, time has gone so quickly. and it's I have five to, years already. It's almost oh. five years. It'll be five years in June. And uh, I have to I look back on what I've done here, and I've really enjoyed the research environment and, and being part of one of the most fantastic uh, astronomy research groups in the country, if not the world. And it's very hard for me to go. However, this is the life of a, of a postdoc, as you well know. Unfortunately, contracts do come to an end, and the funding dries up, and you have to move on. I look back on my research, and I'm very, very happy with the work I've done here. It's been absolutely fantastic. But apart from that, I'm also extremely proud of the work that we've done together the Jodcast. And it's it's thrilling to have Dave uh, on the line as well, because Dave, you, Stuart, and me, we were the ones who came up with the idea of the Jodcast. We did. It's three and a half years ago. Can you believe that? Three and a half years ago, we were standing in a corridor at Jodrell Bank Observatory arguing about whether a podcast would be a good way of doing astronomy research. And lo and behold, it did happen uh, through the good work of yourself, uh, being the computer genius behind everything. And uh, Dave, with his inimitable style and tone and doing all the cool intros. It's just been fantastic. Much of the success of the Jodcast is down to your interviews, Nick. You've done an awful lot of interviews over the past few years. Um, I'm not sure if you know how many you've done. I've never counted, no. <laughs> oh, well, it's 70. I counted 70? them up. Yes. You've Holy done cow. 70 different interviews. Oh, that's fantastic. No, I didn't realise there were that many. <laughs> In fact, I was thinking we'd have a, a very short Jodcast, test your jo- knowledge of the Jodcast quiz. Oh, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, okay, I have a, a few questions here for you. All right. So, who said the whole solar system would be oscillating like a jelly? Oh, that's easy. That's uh, Jerry Gilmore uh, talking about Gaia. It was <laughs> indeed. Um, when was the first extra show? Oh no. Um, uh, d- 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 May two thousand seven. It was indeed. Ah, well done. Um, who is the most recurring intro and outro character? 
Um, oh, I don't know. I'm sorry, Dave. Ah, hell. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Who has sent us the most postcards? Ah, uh, that would probably be Jason Hill. It is indeed. Which was the longest show that we've ever done? Oh, the longest show. That would, uh, would that be the one at the IAU General Assembly where we recorded all of that? No, we cut a lot of that out, didn't we? And just distilled the whole argument down to like yep. 10 minutes or something. Oh, the longest show. Ah, the Suburban Interview. That's not a oh, Jodcast show. That's, that's not a show. Uh, that's, that's a, that's a oh, non-canonical Jodcast production. Um, oh, no. Oh, which is the longest show? Oh, no, I can't remember. I give up. Well, the, the very longest was NAM last year, NAM uh, 2008. It was 157 minutes, 59 that's seconds right. long. That was a mammoth if it was. It was very, very mammoth. <laughs> okay, and the final question. Who coined the term Jodon? It wasn't any of us. Susan, Susan Lockwood. It was indeed. Well done. You get full points. <laughs> hey! John Master. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad I remember something about what happened in the last three and a half years. <laughs> yeah, you've been listening. <laughs> oh, seriously. It's been an ab- ab- absolute thrill doing this sort of work. And it just goes to show what you can do with a group of enthusiastic and talented people who just got the commitment and the drive to do uh, something which they've always wanted to do. That's how things get done. And, Despite the fact that I'm leaving, I'm looking forward to the Jodcast continuing uh, because there are a number of people here who are going to be taking up the reins of the interviews and I look forward to seeing how they continue. I hope everybody out there will continue to listen. This is one different voice which you won't hear that often. But like I said before, I will be back from time to time. It just will be a little bit different format and you might see me popping up a little bit more often on the forum, I should think. <laughs> I've been lurking for quite some time. I haven't said much. Well, I'm sure all the listeners will join me in saying thank you, Nick, for a fantastic three and a half years of Jodcasting. And we really do hope you'll come back soon. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you, Nick. So, with that sad news, that brings us to the end of this April edition of the Jodcast for 2009. So that just leaves us to say thank you to Ian Stevens. Also, thank you to Pamela Gay and Fraser Kane from Astronomy Cast for taking part in our April Fool edition of the intro and outro. So until next time... Jod on. Look, I- I'm sorry. I didn't realise it was an April Fool's joke. I mean, I, I, yeah, the axe. I, I, it, yeah, these things happen. And I'm, I'm... Uh, no problem, David. Good to have you back and passionate about astronomy. No hard feelings. Of course not. Okay. Thanks, guys. I'll, I'll see you around. Although soon the Jodcast will be ours as well. <laughs>